Thank you for listening to Eclipsed Epics, Season 2, Episode 5, The White Butcher. A week ago, we talked about Finland declaring itself independent, and Lenin allowing it temporarily. We also introduced Carl Gustav Mannerheim, the father of Republican Finland. Starting where we left off, Mannerheim was present at the disaster at the Kondina Fields. During Nicholas II's coronation, peasants gathered in that field with the hope of catching a glimpse of the new czar and on the rumor that that same new czar was handing out cash, food, prizes, beer, or some combination of any and all of these. The result was too many desperate and expecting subjects crowded in too small of an area. More than 1,000 people were literally stampeded by their fellow subjects and killed. Another 1,000 were seriously injured. The best modern-day comparison that I have to this is the Hillsborough tragedy of 1989. On April 15th, an FA semifinal match was scheduled in a stadium that was built closer to the time of the tragedy of the Kodina Field than the semifinal itself. The amount of fans entering to watch that match quickly overwhelmed the stadium itself. In this case, because we're in a more modern world, only 96 people died. Many of them were crushed to death. If you look at the video of that, I watched an ESPN 30 for 30 on this, and that was terrifying. And so those 96 people, I, I feel for them, or the many of them that I referred to. And it wasn't the full 96. And 776 were actually injured. At Codina Field, Mannerheim was called to the scene as a celebration precipitously turned into catastrophe. Mannerheim described a landscape, quote, which protruded a hand here and a leftless foot there, end quote. I can't imagine all the things that Mannerheim left out of that already disturbing quote. Along with guarding the czar and cleaning up his messes, Mannerheim showed himself quite adept with horses. So much so, he would be put in a position to be responsible for the stables of the guard and the imperial family. Imagine the head mechanic of the presidential motorcade, or Air Force One, and Mannerheim had that position within Tsarist Russia before the end of the 19th century. This position would put him closer to the imperial family of not only Russia, but other imperial families throughout Europe. He was in Berlin, the capital of the newly pronounced German Empire, examining a horse when it kicked him in the knee. The impact of that snapped Mannerheim's knee and count him five places. The German Emperor, Wilhelm II, heard of this incident and had his own doctor look after Mannerheim. There was nothing the doctor could do for him and told Mannerheim that limping would be a permanent fixture in his life. Mannerheim, quite stubborn, did not accept this prognosis. He recuperated for two months and then embarked on what must have been an excruciating exercise regimen to rehabilitate that knee. After the end of this regimen, Mannerheim considered his knee more or less healed. We're going to see if that is actually healed because about this same time uh, is when the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II, bungled himself into the Russo-Japanese War, setting himself up for that complete faceplant that was the Russian Revolution of 1905. 
Mannerheim wanted to go serve the Tsar, but his family felt differently. His brother was actually exiled in one of the many crackdowns in Finland since the assassination of Governor General Babrikov. His family forced Mannerheim to write a letter to his brother to justify exactly why he wanted so badly to serve a czar that would exile his own brother. In that letter, Mannerheim argued that men do not fight for a government, but fight for the military they have become a part of. And if you're living in the United States and maybe you've served, I think you might understand that notion. Of course, I haven't served, so I don't understand what you're thinking, so don't sit here and think I... I know what you're going through or anything like that. But I I do think I have seen many men and many women serve administrations they either did not vote for or agree with. They fight nonetheless because it boils down to being there for your friends in combat. You have the ultimate trust in them that they are going to have your back in the worst of circumstances, and they have that ultimate trust in you. There's a reason Spielberg named his HBO docudrama on the 101st Airborne Division during World War II, Band of Brothers. Because those people you go into battle with, you trust like a brother, and possibly more than your actual brother. In this letter, Mannerheim turned from the high-minded to the base reality of it all. He was a broken man. His wife and kids left him to go to Paris. Jonathan Clements, one of Mannerheim's biographers, makes the argument that Mannerheim was saying that the world would be better off without him if he just died. He lost his dad, he lost his mom, his wife, his kids. Certainly, if he wanted to continue this sad line of logic, to Mannerheim, life would be better without him. So, Mannerheim decided to die in the most chivalrous way possible. There's one problem, though. Mannerheim was delayed in a suicide by war mission by three months due to bureaucratic red tape. At the time of Mannerheim's eventual arrival in country, Port Arthur was under siege by the Japanese. This war was largely fought on the northern part of the Korean Peninsula on the Yellow Sea, where China and North Korea inhabit today. For example, Port Arthur is now in Chinese territory. By that time, the war was more like a major city during rush hour. Imagine cars bumper to bumper and not much movement and you're not that far off. Mannerheim was also not getting anywhere in any particular hurry. He spent a month chomping at the bit to fight, which actually happened at the end of 1904. He was sent to scout out an area that was believed to have Japanese soldiers. Mannerheim and his men made it to the outer edge of this area before Japanese guns opened fire. This was Mannerheim's first actual taste of actual combat. He would prove to be less fearful for himself and more fearful for the men in his unit. He received a commendation for this service during the Japanese war. During the fighting that would tarnish Russia's reputation on the world stage, Mannerheim specifically proved himself valuable to Russia to the point of re-aggravating his earlier knee injury, which forced him out of fighting and into some rest relaxation, and rehabilitation. And after recuperating, Mannerheim was sent on a special assignment from the Tsar himself to China under the guise of a Swedish explorer while he was surveying the country for military reforms. The information was deemed so valuable by the Tsar, he soon promoted Mannerheim to his inner circle, making the Finn with a proud family history of independence 
one of the highest-ranking men to the Tsar, who was entirely opposed to Finland as anything other than Russia. When the Archduke of Austria-Hungary was assassinated on the streets of Sarajevo, Mannerheim was resting his five-decade-old body in a German spa. Nevertheless, when the call came for battle, a newly invigorated but still old and injured Mannerheim answered that call. And this is going to be a recurring theme for the rest of his life. When whatever country he pledged allegiance called, Mannerheim, no matter his opinion or ailment, would answer it. In this instance, he was stationed near Galicia on the Eastern Front. Then, his superior was wounded early in 1915, which led to Mannerheim commanding a cavalry division, and the wounding of another superior led to a second promotion. From this vantage, Mannerheim looked poised to reach heights one would think unattainable within the Tsar's structure, given his socioeconomic and geographic background. And unfortunately for Mannerheim, that Tsar's structure was crumbling. You will recall Russia's only moment in the sun during the Great War was the Brusilov Offensive, and even that came at a huge cost, like all offensives during the war. This came to a head in March 1917. Mannerheim was actually in Petrograd for the February Revolution. Despite Russia's showing in the First World War and its crumbling infrastructure, Mannerheim remained an avowed monarchist which is ironic given his George Washington-like status in current-day Finland. Regardless of the more democratic government in charge, Mannerheim was dead set on going back to the front and fighting. This time, he received orders to fight in Romania. It was there where Mannerheim heard the news of the abdication of the Tsar and the absolution of the monarchy. That shook Mannerheim to his core. Let's keep something in mind, that to a monarchist, democracy looks something like anarchy to someone today. The final nail in the coffin for Mannerheim, dutiful Russian subject, was the October Revolution. And this is where the Bolsheviks took power. So if democracy was off-putting to Mannerheim, what would the dictatorship of the proletariat look like? The seizure of power by the Bolsheviks basically brings us back to where we started the Mannerheim vignette, the Declaration of Independence by the Senate of Finland. The Declaration of Independence was followed by the implementation of a more parliamentary style of democracy. Later in 1917, after a harrowing escape from Petrograd with many tense, nail-binding exchanges with revolutionaries, Mannerheim pulled into Finland's capital determined to keep the Bolsheviks at arm's length. Even though Mannerheim was suspicious of parliamentary politics, i.e. the mob, the alternative was communism totally anathema to his very being. The problem, as Mannerheim saw it, was that nearly half of the Finnish Senate was consisted of social democrats, no better than full-throated Bolsheviks, according to Mannerheim. These social democrats advocated closer ties to those very Bolsheviks in Russia. Fearing the worst, Mannerheim began securing independence by, among other things, entering discussions with nations more friendly to democracy to get arms for Finland to defend herself. And while that is going on, there is going to be a growing divide between the whites, a more conservative group of Finns ranging from monarchists to republicans, and the reds, a more liberal group including socialists, communists, social democrats. 
In addition to that growing divide, the new independent Finland still had to deal with a number of billeted Russian troops that were leftovers from the intense Russification program of the early 1900s. By hook or by crook, the Finnish prime minister appointed Karl Gustav Mannerheim in charge of kicking these soldiers out and dealing with the brewing civil war. Spurred on by a young Joseph Stalin, the Reds took Helsinki by surprise attack on January 28, 1918. But the Whites had control of the Baltic coast, especially in Vasa, and soon central Finland. By the end of February, Finland was divided into halves. And while we're talking about Finland geographically, split into two, now is as good a time as any to draw a rough sketch of the geography of Finland and the surrounding areas. Finland makes up the eastern part of the Scandinavian peninsula, that piece of land that sticks out of Europe like a snork, or for a more modern reference, like uh, Snoo, the Reddit uh, logo. Finland shares three borders. One, a 360-mile one with Sweden to its west. Two, a 457-mile one with Norway to its north. And three, an 830-mile one with the USSR to its east. And that's roughly equivalent to the United States-California coast. Finland is also surrounded by the Gulf of Bithynia to its west and the Gulf of Finland to its south which both feed into the Baltic Sea. Most of Finland is made up of thick, unconquered wilderness, while one-third of its land lies above the Arctic Circle. Unsurprisingly, most humans live in the south near the Gulfs. In the south, squeezed between the Gulf of Finland to the west and Lake Ladoga to the east, Finland shares the Karelian Isthmus with its enormous neighbor to the east. The Finnish capital of Helsinki is located on the southern coast of Finland. Tarku, near Mannerheim's birthplace, is located on the southwest coast of Finland. Vasa is located on the western coast of Finland and is also the capital of the White Guard at the beginning of the Finnish Civil War. The Whites basically controlled north and central Finland, less strategically valuable positions. The Reds had the more strategic south, including Helsinki, in their favor. But against its favor, the Red Guard had 70,000 ill-trained and poorly-led troops funded by Lenin, who also had his own civil war to deal with. The White Guard had the same amount of troops, but one key advantage that will serve Finland well when we actually get to the Winter War. Mannerheim made great use of the returning 27th Prussian Royal Jaeger Battalion, Although these 2,000 nationalist Finns wanted to keep their unit together, Mannerheim had other designs on how to deploy these German-trained troops. Mannerheim needed to split them up to form a highly professional backbone of his entirely conscripted army. He needed to leverage all the knowledge the Jaegers gained from one of the best armies in the world and their experience fighting for it. Oddly enough, fighting against the army that Mannerheim fought for. This knowledge and experience would trickle down from the Jaegers, who would make up the officers of this new Finnish army by way of battlefield and organizational osmosis. This was the key that had demonstrated itself to white, red, and Russian alike by March 1918. A month later, 
the Red Guard's most important base was captured by the Whites. In May, Helsinki was captured by a small German amphibious group who then promptly handed it over to the White Guards. The Whites secured Finland at the cost of 38,000 Finns, about 35% of those fighting in this war. After the war, more than 800 sympathizers with the Red Guard were killed extrajudiciously, according to Mannerheim's biographer Clement. The animosity this action engendered amongst Finns of all stripes would take a while to dissipate. While it would dissipate by the time we get to the Winter War, this animosity was something Stalin would gamble that war on. The man blamed most for these Civil War atrocities that resulted in more than 11,000 dead was Mannerheim. He, in fact, was a poster child for these deaths, whether it be intentional neglect or just not having enough food, water, or shelter for such prisoners. Mannerheim would be consistently smeared by the left, being called the White Butcher. Regardless, after the war and some brief flirtations with more autocratic ways of governance, Finland would choose to be a republic by the end of 1918. Next week, we're going to shift our focus to Russia's own civil wars, its leader at the time of the Winter War, and one of the most infamous men in all of history.